a milestone in the Fulton County investigation to Donald Trump. We expect one of these two panels, it's not clear which, will hear the indictment, the, the charges presented. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, we're in the dog days of summer, but there's so much political news to talk about. I know we've both been busy out there, out and about in Atlanta, around the state. I got to speak to a big group of folks at the Sandy Springs Library a couple nights ago. And speaking of dog days of summer, the air conditioning was off. So <laughs> kudos to the crowd for staying in there in the sauna and watching as um, as uh, my grandfather would say, I schwitzed up a storm, but we were all schwitzing up a storm. I think we all lost a couple <laughs> pounds just sitting in the, in the sauna. But uh, it's it's been fun. There's so much going on in Georgia politics. Uh, even oh, there's so much election. going on. Yes, there's so much going on. I scheduled my Georgia politics road trip under the false assumption <laughs> that there's never much anything going on in Georgia politics, especially in an off year summer with no statewide candidates to speak of. So unlike your dog days of summer, I was up in Dade County and Dalton. It was delightful earlier this week. But man, today we're taping this on Tuesday. We just had an explosion of news. We're just we're barely into the week right now. And I think this is going to continue the pace. I don't just particularly with that news that we're going to talk about about the grand jury. We are in it uh, for the moment and for the time being. I don't see this slowing down at all. Which is why we had to reshuffle the lineup today. We're going to talk about the latest developments in the Fulton County probe into Donald Trump and his allies. We're going to discuss the Democrat who switched sides today and joined the Republican Party. A voting rights narrative duel is playing out in Georgia in a major way and a new twist in Governor Brian Kemp's political future. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. It appears we've reached a major milestone in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump and his allies here in Georgia. As District Attorney Fonnie Willis's promise of an imminent announcement just inched a little bit closer, Fulton County selected two separate grand jury panels on Tuesday, and one of the panels is expected to decide whether to indict Trump and his allies on charges that they criminally interfered with the 2020 presidential election. Our AJC colleague, Jeremy Redman, was on the scene, and he's here today to join us. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. My pleasure, Greg. Glad to be with you all. So tell me, what was the scene like? It seemed like there was a bizarre scene of a bunch of reporters waiting around outside closed doors most of the day in the Fulton County Courthouse. Yeah, picture this. So there are about a dozen broadcast and print reporters gathered in a row of seats off to the side. And we were watching as Judge McBurney, uh, wearing his ceremonial black robe, stood before a large assembly room, pretty drab, gray carpet, red cushioned seats, with around 100 potential jurors gathered. Um, when he began to speak, uh, they put away their phones and the books they read, they were reading, and uh, he started giving them instructions about how the process was going to work. 
And then one by one, he called on them by name and said, are you ready to serve or do you have a hardship such as a medical uh, situation or you're the sole caregiver for a child? And of about 100 that showed up, about 20 maybe cited hardships. They were brought into a private room uh, while we waited and met with the judge and some of the other court officials to talk about uh, what hardships could happen over the next two months where they're expected to serve twice a week and hear numerous cases, one of which is supposed to be the case involving Trump. Uh, and then they emerged from this, uh, this meeting and they announced two panels had been formed, panel A and panel B. It's not clear which one will hear the Trump case. Um, and then uh, some more instructions were read. The jurors then um, stood, raised their right hand and agreed to an oath. And then uh, the judge swore in the bailiff. And for maybe about 45 minutes, uh, there was a break in there where the district attorney's office met with the two panels and went over more instructions. Uh, the reporters were let back in later uh, for some final instructions. And then the judge thanked them and we were on our way. It all took about four hours today. You said it wasn't clear which panel was going to uh, take up the Trump case, but is it, are we certain that one of them is, I mean, did the judge or the district attorney say that one of them certainly is going to, uh, uh take up the Trump case or is that still an, uh, a sort of a shrouded in mystery? I mean, there's still some mystery there. We know it'll be one of these panels because it aligns with what, Fonnie Willis has said about when the indictment will be presented to the grand jury, which is supposed to be this month or next. And these two panels will be meeting during that time. Trump was never mentioned during the roughly four hours a day, nor the election. Uh, the jurors were instructed not to discuss their deliberations that they'll be doing in secret. We were uh, told not to photograph them as well. So there is some mystery around this. But Based on all the reporting uh, we've done at the AJC and what Fonnie Willis has said in a letter she sent county officials some weeks ago, um, we expect one of these two panels, it's not clear which, will hear the indictment, the, the charges presented. Jeremy, what do we know about these two panels other than the fact about uh, the, you know, the criteria that they, of course, live in Fulton County, be Fulton County residents? But is there any way to know what else um, might have gone into choosing them other than their just pure availability? Yeah, I think really availability was the key thing. They're also trying to seek a diverse group of people to serve on these panels. During the, the discussion between Judge McBurney and the jurors, when he asked them about their availability, whether they're ready to serve or they have a quote-unquote hardship, we did learn a little bit about some of these potential jurors because he identified several who shared the same last name by their occupation to distinguish between them. So we know one of them is a teacher, one's a former firefighter, one's an investigator. There was an artist who described herself as an illustrator. And uh, one of the more interesting jobs we heard was from a man who uh, told the judge that he's an explosion prevention dispatcher. <laughs> um, the, the judge injected some levity. Uh, McBurney has a really funny sense of humor, doesn't take himself too seriously. Uh, and at one point, you know, he was citing just the importance of what they're doing, that, you know, there are a, they're a check in the system that the prosecutor and the attorney general have to present cases to them. And they... Uh, decide by vote uh, whether to quote unquote true bill them or 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 not. And if they true bill them, then it actually arises to a criminal case that will go before a judge. And he said, look, you know, 
I get it. You know, I'm not trying to make light of this. This is an imposition on you. And I quote, he said, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. It is a commitment of time. It is a public service. It is an imposition on you, but it is a necessary imposition because we don't simply let police arrest and all of a sudden you have a got it, you've got a court case. But then he said uh, around that same time, he said, uh, look, there's an incentive to service here. And he called it uh, a whopping $25 a day uh, for their service. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, was injecting some levity throughout the whole process. Uh, um, some of the jurors were chuckling and smiling about it. And uh, he, he even said, uh, look, you know, hardships that would qualify. He, he tried to explain that to him before they um, gave their answer. And he said, look, you know, medical condition, which would make it impossible for you to show, show up at the courthouse or you are the sole caregiver for a child. But he said, uh, look, you know, um, we're going to try to keep a straight face if you say you have a Braves ticket and it's a day game. <laughs> so it was light at times, but also solemn and serious uh, for much of the proceeding. And if you know Judge McBurney, that, that's who he is. He also said, if you weren't selected to serve, you actually missed out. So, <laughs> you know, they missed out potentially on a piece of history. Jeremy, one question sort of in the weeds for you. We had the special grand jury that, that deliberated, that met behind closed doors for months and put together the report. Do we know if this regular grand jury will also do some investigative work or do they just rely on what the special grand jury already did? Uh, my understanding is it's different in that sense that um, this grand jury, uh, if I if I heard it correctly and followed the proceedings, I think it did, is that you know they're simply going to receive information from a prosecutor with this charging information. They can ask questions. Uh, if they don't feel like they're getting the information that they want from the DA, uh, McBurney told them, look, you'll have a judge presiding over the grand jury you can go to in case of any impasse. He also instructed them, look, you're not supposed to do outside research, say to Google or go to LexisNexis. You were to rely on the district attorney's office for information about the legal matters uh, that will be considered. Um, so there was uh, a lot of um, pretty dry um, but important uh, sets of constructions that he read to them. Uh, but to answer your question, this is different uh, in many ways than the special grand jury that met earlier. And Jeremy, what's the next thing that we'll see publicly out of this process? Well, you know, they're supposed to meet, uh, again, there are 23 people on each panel. They're supposed to meet in secret. So we're really not going to be able to follow precisely what's going on with them. One panel meets Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, the other panel, panel will meet Thursdays and Fridays. I think the potential next thing that we'll hear that is public and that um, we'll get is an indictment in this case. That's a big moment. <laughs> well, Jeremy, <laughs> yeah. thank you so much for joining us on Politically Georgia. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you all. Talk about dueling narratives, Patricia. The voting rights divide came back to Georgia in a major, major way this week. It was Monday when House Republicans arrived in Cobb County to introduce a federal measure that's modeled after Georgia's 2021 law. It would limit private funding for election administration, penalize states that allow non-citizens to vote in local elections, ban federal agencies for participating in voter registration activities, and incorporate some things that Georgia law already does, um, like ban outside election funding, require voter ID, and as I mentioned earlier, prohibit non-citizen voting. Patricia, this measure is not going to pass a divided Congress or, or earn President Biden's signature, but it does give Republicans their own talking points, their own narrative, 
heading into 2024. And the timing and the setting of the announcement a few days before the All-Star game in John Lewis's home state, it was no coincidence. Yeah, it was no coincidence at all. First of all, uh, Barry Loudermilk, Barry Loudermilk, the congressman, whose name I have a hard time saying and spelling for some reason. Every time I spell it wrong, you have to go back and redo it. Uh, He sits on this committee, the House Administration Committee, which oversees election laws around the country or the federal election laws anyway. And um, to your point, this uh, really was pegged. It had a news peg to the Major League Baseball game, which takes us all back in our way back PTSD political combat machine um, to remember when the Major League Baseball decision came down that they had moved the All-Star Baseball game from Atlanta to Denver and Republicans, particularly Governor Brian Kemp, seized on that moment as a political um, kind of lightning in a bottle. They went after the MLB so hard. They also attacked any other uh, corporation, even a Georgia-based corporation like Delta Airlines, just mercilessly went after them for criticizing Georgia's election law, SB202. Now, the federal law is modeled significantly on that election law, on SB202. And it's for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, that bill passed out of a Georgia General Assembly, signed by a conservative governor, also happened to be in a state that Donald Trump uh, did not win, but said he did. And it just became an unbelievably electrifying issue for Republicans kind of no matter how they felt about Donald Trump. So it really feeds the Trump base who still believes that the elections were stolen. But it also passes muster with conservatives who say and have long wanted to tighten up Georgia's election laws in a lot of different ways. So this mirrors the Georgia um, elections bill when it comes to um, having photo ID for absentee voting, banning private funding of county election operations, which was something that was really critical during the um, during the COVID pandemic, but is something that Republicans felt like unfairly advantaged large Democratic counties. Um, so it this has the benefit of being policy that almost all Republicans like and politics that almost all Republicans can benefit from. And so that's going that's just a huge winner. Then you bring it down to Georgia with this built in news peg and it just made a ton of sense for the Republicans to be down here. Now, um, that came after a lot of news that we've seen over the last several years that turnout has been up in Georgia Mm -hmm. or holding steady. We've been breaking records. Georgia had the highest turnout in the South for the 2022 elections. Republicans say that is proof that this was nothing at all like Jim Crow 2.0, which is what Joe Biden famously called SB 202. Democrats will say they plowed millions and millions of dollars into Georgia during those elections and in the run up to them in order to get people to understand the new election laws. So you know, both can be true at the same time. Um, turnout was up and steady, sometimes broke records, but there were restrictions in that bill as well as expansions, um, particularly the drop boxes is something that you hear Democrats most upset about. Um, limiting drop boxes to inside during voting hours kind of defeats the purpose of that whole program. Definitely was a flashback to me to 2021 and all the the debate we had over SB202, a fact note, a numbers geek note, the turnout rate in last year's general action actually decreased from the previous midterm four years ago from 54% to 52% of the voting eligible population. But as you noted, Patricia is still setting all sorts of records in the South and number two only to Texas and overall. 
um, in terms of voter participation, according to a federal report that our colleague Mark Nisi wrote about. And, you know, I mentioned it being John Lewis's home state. He's the late civil rights icon from Georgia is the namesake of the Democratic proposal, which the Republicans brought in response to the Democratic proposal, which we talked about so much last year and the year before that, because we know that that was, if not the top priority, one of the top priorities of Senator Raphael Warnock and other leading Democrats. Um, The Democrats bill would have made election day a holiday, limited voter purges from voter rolls, allowed people to register to vote and cast a ballot on the same day and strengthened federal oversight of changes to state voting laws that have been gutted under Supreme Court rulings. And just like the Republican bill is not going anywhere, the Democratic measures have stalled out despite support from Warnock and the rest. It was blocked by a Republican filibuster back in 2021. That was the closest it came to passing. And since then, really, you know, just as there's no chance of the GOP bill passing with a Republican-controlled House, there's no chance of the Democratic federal election bill to pass either. Yeah. And I think the biggest complaint about all of these bills from elections experts is that they came after the 2020 elections and were based in large part on energy and anger on the right because of what Donald Trump said about the elections, claiming that the elections were stolen, claiming that um, absentee ballots had been abused and were fraudulent, uh, claiming a whole bunch of things about drop boxes. Um, All of those claims were false. There was no evidence behind them. But the laws largely followed a lot of Donald Trump's conspiracies. And so um, while some of these on a policy level may or may not make sense. They were politically absolutely based on what Donald Trump was falsely claiming about the elections. And so um, when you start from that point, it's very difficult to have a policy that makes sense and is you know completely legitimate, um, almost no matter what the outcome of it is. And that's I think that's always been Democrats in particular, their biggest problem. But even election experts you talk to say, well, where is the proof that there was fraud in the first place. And if neither of these bills are going to pass, why are we talking about them? Well, Patricia, you just hit the nail on the head. These are going to be part of the political narrative heading into 2024 as Republicans talk about their vision for more ballot security, their attempts to energize MAGA crowd, the Donald Trump supporters who believe the falsehoods about election fraud and conspiracy theories about stolen elections and all that, but also those who are genuinely concerned Um, with ballot integrity, a poll by the AJC in January showed that voter confidence in elections has improved among among both conservatives and liberals since the 2020 election. But still, a majority of those surveyed said Georgia's voting law did not have a significant impact in their support. And so on the Democratic side, Patricia, you know, we saw especially in the 2018 election, but it hasn't gone away, voting rights becoming such a big signature issue for Democrats. And so we're going to hear more from Joe Biden, his allies in 2024 about their plans, even if they're not going to pass, even if they haven't, they won't pass by then their plans to expand voting rolls and make it easier for people to vote. Well, and I think as a result of a number of Republican legislatures, including Georgia's passing pretty significant election overhauls, Democrats now feel like they need to double time it to get their voters up to speed on voting in the next presidential election cycle. So our midterm year, uh, you know, 
participation was uh, was high, uh, but it's not always. In fact, it's rarely the exact same. It's never the exact same group of voters um, between midterms and presidentials. And so Democrats believe in their heart that this was done to depress Democratic turnout and they are going to raise and spend millions to make sure that that Democratic turnout does not fall off in the 2024 elections. Millions, tens of millions, even more. So <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah, well, excuse me. Yes. It's just, lot, just small change these days. A lot of money is about to be spent in Georgia. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, your hosts, were also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and you can get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, we had a very interesting moment in state politics on Tuesday when Misha Maynard, a Democrat who you've written a lot about, and we've we've, featured her in the Jolt, but you've written columns about her. She represents a West Atlanta district that is not a swing district. (laughs) This is a district that President Biden won with about 90% of the vote. So... Definitely not some sort of, uh, this was not done out of political expediency, but she switched to the Republican Party. She said she was tired of being bullied and harassed and intimidated by her fellow Democrats for her stance on school vouchers, for her stance on the district attorney oversight measure, for her stance on other measures where she's bucked the party line and ended up voting with the GOP. And you know now she makes the Republican majority just one vote bigger. Uh, Democrats were not exactly sad to see her go. <laughs> Josh McLaurin texted me good riddance. <laughs> so Jeez. he's a state senator. Patricia, I, I think we're of two different minds on on what we expected. I expected her to remain in the state Democratic Party and kind of become the Republican Party's favorite Democrat in the state, much much like we saw with Vernon Jones a couple of years ago when he endorsed Donald Trump but did not immediately switch parties. So then he became you know, Donald Trump's most high-profile Democratic supporter. He would crowd surf. He would appear on stage with him at rallies. I'm not saying Misha Maynard's following in Vernon Jones' footsteps, but you can get a lot of your bang for your buck by not switching parties, especially when you're in a district like hers where you could imagine a lot of folks aren't tuning in to a primary next year. Who knows? But either way, she switched parties. She's now a member of the Republican Party, and Republicans are exultant. Governor Kemp, Speaker John Burns, former Senator Kelly Leffler are among the Republicans who are welcoming her with open arms. And, you know, I 
was really fascinated by Misha Maynard this particular legislative session. She has always been a little different from other Democrats. She has always been very outspoken. She has picked issues that are not kind of like the typical Democratic bread and butter. She's been very vocal about um, anti-stalking legislation because she herself was and and may even continue to be a victim of stalking. Um, I spoke with her at length about that, I think on her first day of the legislative session. She said that was something that she wanted to do because she felt like women's voices were really not being heard in prosecutors' offices in many cases. So this legislative session, um, prosecutors were a huge, huge point of contention between Democrats and Republicans. And along with voting for this school voucher bill, Maynard also spoke out against Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's office, Mm -hmm. which for a lot of Democrats, that is a no-go. That is DEFCON 1. You do not say bad things about Fonnie Willis's office, particularly because she's in the process of potentially prosecuting Donald Trump. Um, She's just somebody we don't hear complaints about from other Democrats. But Misha Maynard was quite critical of Fonnie Willis's office when she voted along with Republicans on their prosecutorial oversight bill. That angered a bunch of Democrats. Uh, Then you follow up with the school voucher bill. And she said, listen, I am in a district with poor children who shouldn't be in the schools that they're having to attend. They should have better choices. I'm voting with the Republicans. Now, at the same time, a number of Republicans switched over to vote for the Democrats. More Republicans switched over to vote for the Democrats because they're from rural districts. They felt like that voucher bill would do very little to help kids in their district, but do a lot to hurt the schools in their district. So they voted with the Democrats. After that vote in particular, I watched Misha Maynard, and she just was physically ostracized Mm -hmm. by Democrats. Mm -hmm. There was a meal. I can't remember if it was lunch or dinner. I think it was dinner. It was late. Yeah, there was a meal break. People were going out to get dinner. um, And she just sat alone in the chamber. Mm. And it was as if she had, nobody came up to her and said, hey, I get it. Or a tough break. We'll see you next time. You know, we'll see you around. Nothing, just nothing, nothing really isolated in that chamber by Democrats. And other Democrats were um, going off to get dinners together and huddle and have meetings. Um, We heard in the hallways how angry they were with her. And then shortly thereafter, we saw on social media, particularly from Senator Josh McLaurin saying, I've got (laughs) to check for whoever wants to run against Misha Maynard. Just livid, livid and personal. And he wasn't the only one on social media going after her. And in my mind, I'm like, this lady's going to switch parties pretty soon. This is this is not the yeah, way you to saw this somebody in your own party. You saw this is inevitable. Yeah. I, I just kind of thought she'd play the uh, play it the other way. Um, and yeah, you mentioned like she, she it wasn't just look, she was the only Democrat to support that failed bill that would have created sixty five hundred dollar private school vouchers. You mentioned the district attorney bill. She also broke with her party on, but she also supported a ban on COVID-19 vaccination requirements, a measure that would prevent local governments from passing budgets that defund the police. She supported a measure that would remove bipartisan appointments to a local elections board in South Georgia. So there was this tradition of her kind of ticking off her fellow Democrats. And as you mentioned in a column you wrote not so long ago, working with the late House Speaker David Ralston in a key way, 
Yeah, she uh, wrote an op-ed for the AJC and described a moment where she had disagreed with her fellow Democrats, voted against them on a bill, and then she got a note. She was sitting on the on the floor of the House. She got a note that said, the Speaker wants to see you. And she's like, oh, what do I do now? Now I'm really in trouble. Something, <laughs> something terrible happened. My own happened. partner doesn't like me she now. He went, doesn't like me. <laughs> Yeah. So Speaker Ralston, of course, was a Republican. Um, and when she got to his office, he said, I just want to tell you to keep doing what you're doing. Be be true to your constituents and you're not going to go wrong. And she said that just meant the world to her. The fact that it came from a Republican speaker um, was a surprise to her. So she has been at arm's length from her party. But the tone and the nature of fellow Democrats going after her after this session in particular, coupled with the fact that when she was speaking out against Democrats, it was on Fox News, Mm -hmm. national Fox News. So then I'm like, this seems to be going a certain direction. And But even when it did happen, I was surprised because she is in a district where Republicans don't not only do they not win, they don't really run. So I don't know what this means for her politically, but clearly she felt like this was the time to make the jump. She was certainly going to get primaried by uh, I I knew of at least a handful of Democrats that were eyeing a challenge against her. Now the now the landscape is different because it's a it's a wide open Democratic primary. We'll see what happens there. Misha Maynard had previously said she would not switch parties. Here's what she told our friend Niles Francis. I've never given thoughts of switching parties. In fact, I was quoted in the AJC saying that education is a value and the Democrats just happen to have this value wrong. So the Democrats need to change their value when it comes to education. So Patricia... Um, things change, <laughs> you know, that was just a few weeks ago. She said, I'm not switching parties. Uh, I'm going to pull more Democrats to where I think on school vouchers that has changed dramatically. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because it got so personal between her and her fellow members. Um, there certainly was, was no love lost by the end. I do think for Democrats, this is going to, and why I was puzzled why they were so aggressive toward her, even though she was very clearly off the reservation on a whole bunch of issues. Um, not, you know, the fact that they're down one vote, I, I don't think that's a huge issue. They're, they're they're not exactly on the cusp of the majority, um, so this is not going to delay the inevitable. They're going to need a they're going to need to pick yeah, up a bunch more. They seats. didn't see this as um, a betrayal, Democrats. No. Yeah. Gosh, no. So that that's not the situation. But she is going to be used by Republicans now as a proof point to say Democrats are the extremists on certain issues. Um, even a Democrat agrees with us and she switched parties as a result, particularly in that school choice issue. Um, and so uh, she's going to be put front and center by Republicans on a whole bunch of issues, not just in Georgia. I predict she will become a bit of a national superstar um, because this is the exact kind of moment that they've been looking for, that Republicans want to have more people of color, more women, more more um, more people in that demographic speaking out loudly for Republican policies. And so she will, I think, um, th- this won't be the last time we see her on Fox News, that's for sure. No, it's not. And this is significant. You alluded to this, Patricia. She is believed to be the first black woman to serve as a Republican in the Georgia General Assembly. That's according to several uh, state officials that I reached out to because I wasn't sure. You know, I, you never know. And there still could be someone out there if a listener has has proof otherwise. Um, but we could not find any other 
black female to to serve as a Republican. She wasn't elected as a Republican, but she you know is now, and so that is a bit of history. It looks like here in Georgia. And on that note, one more thing, you know, to, to sort of describe the Democrats who are basically saying good riddance, good luck next year. I mean, give me a break. You know, you're not going to win this district. It's a 90% Democratic district. I talked to State Representative Rura Rahman, who is a freshman Democrat from Duluth, uh, among the chamber's more progressive members. She says she's glad that Misha Maynard chose the path of truth rather than the masquerade as a Democrat. This is what Rua said. I hope she'll give voters an opportunity to decide if a Republican is who they want to represent them and resign now to allow for a special election. Now, Bishop Miner's not going to resign now, but certainly this is this is the Democratic, one of the Democratic counters to this is, okay, if you really, you really want to try your hand as a Republican, step down and run, run all over again, see what happens. Yeah. And what's fascinating is that she's obviously not going to have Republican opposition in a GOP primary. So we know she'll be on the November ballot if she chooses to run for election. And she she is quite visible in her district. I mean, she went to ben, Benjamin Mays High School. She is, uh, you know, as I said, vocal. She's seen in her district. I mean, talk about an uphill climb being a Republican running in that part of the city. But we will just wait and see what happens with this one. She certainly has not chosen the path of least resistance. I think we can say that for sure. Exactly. Well, we've also talked a lot about the buzz around a potential emergency Brian Kemp bid for president. And it's grown a little bit louder the last few weeks. Also, how we're still both skeptical because just like Brian Kemp isn't closing the door on the possibility, we'll say anything can happen, but it's not likely, right? Patricia, is that kind of where you're at on this? That is where I'm at. Yes. I mean, listen, in Georgia politics, anything can happen. So, you know, you never say never, but we can say it's almost impossible. Well, meanwhile, Governor Kemp isn't sitting still. We still haven't seen him hire a bunch of staffers and start going to South Carolina or Iowa or New Hampshire or anything like that. But he's still quietly using his leadership committee to promote his political ambitions. And and the leadership committee, for those that need a quick kind of catch up on that, it was empowered by a law that Governor Kemp signed a couple of years ago that allows candidates for top state offices, Democrat and Republican, to raise unlimited contributions. So you can raise, you can get big checks and those organizations can coordinate directly with your campaign. So it's a very novel fundraising vehicle in Georgia. And both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp used it to maximum advantage. In last year's midterm, they both raised tens of millions of dollars through their leadership committees. But now that the election is over, the governor has kept his alive <laughs> and well, and he's still using it to raise money. He's not out the fundraising circuit every other day like he was last year, but he has amassed about $5 million when you count investments and fundraising. A lot of it's through transfers from, from his uh, his campaign, but he also raised about a million dollars doing a three-day retreat down in Sea Island in coastal Georgia a few weeks ago where he notably did not rule out a run for president. So it's a small fortune. It's not it's nothing compared to the, the huge amounts we saw during the midterm, but it's still $5 million bucks, and it's still a reminder that he can use this money, not however he wants, he can't do anything he wants with it, but he can use it to promote his political ambitions. He can use it to attack John Ossoff if he wants. He can use it to go hire staffers. We're already seeing him use it to create basically a shadow network, uh, a shadow state Republican party, because he doesn't feel that, he feels like the state GOP did not do enough to help the ticket last cycle. And we're already seeing him use some of that money to help uh, vulnerable Republican 
legislative incumbents and go after vulnerable Democratic lawmakers who are in swing districts. Well, in politics, of course, money is power. And so even though Brian Kemp is in his second term, he is technically a lame duck. This is a man who is continuing to amass power. And that is a real hat trick. You don't see that a whole lot. What we tend to see in second term governors are leaders who are picking out kind of their legacy issue swinging for the fences on that issue, even if it's not particularly aligned with their own party because they know they're never running for anything ever again. We just don't know that, Brian Kemp. It's also, it's entirely possible he does nothing. I was speaking to one of his advisors. He was like, I don't know why people don't leave open the possibility that he has just had it and is getting out of the business. Yeah. Um, and that is I'm going to make some money. That is completely on the table as well, as we all know. However, by having $5 million in the bank, which is more than anybody else in the state, uh, although Herschel Walker has a whole bunch of money in his campaign account, but that's another conversation. Um, having $5 million at his disposal and not needing to spend it on himself means that he continues to not only attract money from large donors, because that's what that is, he continues to hold sway over other people in the state. And we know that 2026 is going to be a wide open governor's race with a whole bunch of Republicans getting into it for that GOP primary. Brian Kemp can have a say in that race as well. Um, Not only by he doesn't have to endorse somebody, but he sure can prop up somebody or um, put up a party that looks like the kind of party that would select the kind of person he would like to see succeed him in office. And that may be the the particular legacy that Kemp is working to leave behind right now. That is a great note in the show on today. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We cannot wait to hear from you. You can also text Patricia Murphy directly, send her DMs, (laughs) find her on thread. She's all over blue sky and <laughs> I'm on post post now. Mastodon. Mas- I was about to say Mastodon. Don't, don't forget Truth Social. I may get approved there someday. <laughs> <laughs> Just not now. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown. 
The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.